Hello and welcome back to Control-Alt-Delete. This is a replay of a conversation I had in 2019 with Emma Dabiri, presenter, social historian and Sunday Times bestselling author. She's been listed as one of the BBC's broadcasting stars of the future and one of the Observer's 2019 rising stars. In this episode, we discuss her debut book, Don't Touch My Hair, published by Penguin, a brilliant book about why black hair matters. Since this episode aired, Emma's second book, What White People Can Do Next, went on to be a smash hit, Sunday Times bestseller and an Irish Times bestseller. In this brilliant book, she draws on years of research and personal experience to challenge us to create meaningful, lasting change. She really is an incredible voice, and I really recommend picking up a copy of both of her books. Hope you enjoy this episode, and please don't forget to leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help. Hope you enjoy this conversation. From the very first chapter, you get this idea and the realities of the fact that hair plays such a massive role. The features that identify somebody as black um, and that um, mean that they will be racialized as a black person are a lot more than just skin color. Because if you think about it, most of the world's population are people of color. Most of the world's population are have brown skin of varying hues. But most of those people are not racialized as black. So the people who are racialized as black also have Afro textured hair. Hair is also operating really powerfully. There's just less awareness and discussion of the ways that hair is positioning people and that people are being positioned yeah. by their hair. It was so interesting as well what you were saying about how hair kind of talking about how the, the parallels and the and the symbolism between unruly hair or unmanageable hair and that horrible stereotype of like being too outspoken or unmanageable or like that I, that blew my mind you know what actually when I first made that realization it, it I was like wow as well as I've been thinking about it for a while now but initially I was just like this is actually crazy I first started thinking about it maybe when I first kind of really started writing and researching about hair and I was just like, gosh, all of the words to describe <clears throat> my hair texture are pejorative. Like there are no, there are no complimentary, there are no words that actually um, kind of talk about the positive characteristics of my hair. All of the descriptive, the commonly descriptive terms used to describe my hair texture are um, kind of like coarse, wild, um, and then maybe some are slightly better, but they're still to do with um, control and being out of control. And I started thinking more about, yeah, kind of like unruly and defiant. And I was just thinking that um, the words that were at one stage used to describe black people um, haven't actually disappeared. They've just shifted to head height. They're now the terms that we use to describe black people's hair. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that really like stunned me yeah, yeah. And, and just this idea of women should be kept small and, and the way and the way that you were talking about hair and how it's so beautiful for it to take up loads of space but actually what society wants you to do is make it small again yeah to d to diminish it and to shrink it um and that was my main um main aim and objective um when I was when I was younger for most of my life actually I was like I was mortified by my hair and all I wanted 
was for it to like for it to go down and I even remember like I'd go to the hairdresser like when I'd have it relaxed and when I'd have it like chemically straightened and um they'd be like oh your hair your hair is like particularly thick and thick meaning like it's more afro and it's even bigger um so we should like thin it out so you I'd actually get my hair thinned you know everyone wants to have like as much kind of volume and full hair as possible but this idea that like black women were actually like thinning their hair to just to to diminish it and just make it make it less make it take up less space and I also have there's also a bit in the book where I speak about um different um kind of beauty standards as well and I'm talking about like growing up in Ireland where the emphasis was being on was on being like extremely thin this is like in the 90s as well so mm-hmm. that the look was just like very very skinny like the Kate Moss era of yeah like... com- but with boobs skinny oh, but with boobs God, yeah it's difficult to like, achieve essentially unachievable for more than maybe like two percent of the population unless you get some help um so that was very much the standard to aspire to and I would starve myself, but my body is just, my body is just not like, not that shape. Like I have like a, I have like a round bum. I have like full thighs, um, inherited, happily inherited from, um, my Nigerian ancestry. But when I was a teenager, like I didn't even really know that often like black women had a different shape. I just I was just like what's wrong with me like why do all my friends have like a gap in their thighs and mine are like (laughs) I definitely didn't (laughs) (laughs) that would have made me feel much better all my friends well not all of them but so many of them and certainly the ones that were considered the beautiful ones had the gap the elusive gap I was like why are why am I like rubbing against each other and now I know they had to be have to be that size have to be that shape to support my bum but I was looking at um yeah so when I was writing the book I was thinking about like where that beauty standard emerges from and um, I think it's Naomi Wolf that I quote and she talks about um, like a society that kind of demands women to be thin it's not really about or and to take up less space it's not really about that aesthetically it's more about like control um, and how if a, ha- a starved population or a half a, a starved half population are more kind of malleable and I was thinking about how that existed um in contrast to um some of the beauty standards that um you see in kind of like some of the African cultures that I look at um specifically the Yoruba um which is like my mm-hmm. paternal ancestry and um I was looking at how Ashun who's the one of the kind of most well-known Yoruba goddesses, the Arisha, who's considered like extremely, extraordinarily beautiful. Um, I was looking at some of the praise poetry, um, extolling her, um, extolling her features and her beauty. And um, one of them is like a corpulent woman, a woman who's um, basically you can't fit your arms around her waist. And this is being kind of celebrated as the epitome of beauty and I was like wow that's in such kind of stark contrast to a beauty standard that demands that you are are less and you take up like less Mm. space and less room so yeah wow yes it that is it's so interesting to do with the space and the control because and it's like even wearing heels is like taking control from people because you're making them not be able to like walk properly listen listen i'm so glad you brought that up look at my foot if you can bear to (laughs) 
Oh my God, yes. That bunion. I've got that starting. If you can, whatever you can do to like uh, preempt it getting to that level. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Do it. I have it on both sides. Wow. But that one is and more, is that from shoes? That is. So I think somebody else could wear high heels and it might not develop to that level. Um, so I think it's probably something hereditary as well, even though no one else in my family has it. Um, but yeah, so I spent probably the entirety of my later teens up until my mid twenties wearing like insane stilettos. And that definitely came from me subscribing to a particular style of femininity that I thought I had the, a, a way of presenting that I felt under pressure um, to present in. And I was really paranoid about having short legs, but my legs not being like long and thin enough. Mm. Um, so I'd be wearing these like towering stilettos and that's that's the havoc they wreaked upon Blood, my feet. The patriarchy is just trying to ruin our bodies <laughs> forever. Completely. I, I see a big difference between like today and how it was when I was in my teens and 20s. Like I think there have been a lot, I think there have been a lot of improvements. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I don't know, maybe some of the confidence just comes and self-assuredness just comes from being older. But I also do think there have been quite big societal changes. And I think there are more, women can see more options um, in way, for ways of being rather than just kind of like, having to conform to quite limited choices. Yeah. Do you think things are moving fast or do you think it's like the illusion of pace because of the internet? Or, I yeah. don't know, it feels yeah. like something even I have tweeted five years ago, I'm a bit like, oh, don't know if I think that anymore. I do think there's more scope to not just look one particular way. Like things like I don't, like I don't shave my armpits and that's still, I'm amazed by how that still raises eyebrows and comments. But God, when I was like, when I was younger to like, I mean, I wouldn't have done it, but to do that would have been, oh, just met with like a level of revulsion. And I don't know, I think my friends would have been embarrassed to be even seen with me. Like, do you know what I mean? So I think like in, in certain, I think in certain ways things have improved, but they're quite minimal. And maybe they're kind of in certain pockets of people and it might not be something that is happening like across society mm. kind of more generally as, or as a whole and I do think a lot about how younger women must feel and girls must feel under pressure so for me I'm saying oh yeah there's diverse kind of representations of beauty and there are and diverse representations of ways of being but at the same time there is a really homogenized beauty standard as well that I would imagine exerts a lot of pressure and influence on younger women and I do think like a lot of social media particularly the more visually oriented apps must like put immense pressure pressure on young women yeah I mean yeah. even I feel even I feel it a little bit I'm kind of I'm kind of too old and I've kind of deconstructed these things too much <laughs> to really be the really be somebody that's like hugely influenced by that but I can imagine when I was younger it would have been pretty damaging for me yeah god it's true I think if I was 13 now I would be seeing all these amazing role models that have come out of more of a diverse representation of like body image and all that stuff but then at the same time it's like there's this look at the moment isn't there of like the Kim Kardashian face and <laughs> bum and everything and it's like would that would that affect me 
Yeah. It, I'm, I'm so glad I'm older. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I just don't care as much. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, there is that really homogenized beauty. I mean, Kim Kardashian doesn't even look like that. Like, I mean, she does look like that, but like nobody, very few people naturally look like that. I love what you talk about in the book about time and the labor of doing your hair. And that again is is like taking away power, isn't it? Because if you give a woman lots of things to do, you're basically taking away their the availability of them doing other things with their time. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I remember being like so intensely preoccupied and paranoid by my appearance that, you know, even if I wasn't leaving the house, I would probably spend like two hours doing my makeup just because I didn't, I couldn't really bear to look at myself without it. And just on the off chance that somebody came by or I had to leave. Um, so the amount of, I mean, I actually, I love makeup and I'm not like kind of by any means like um, diminishing like the art history in it. Um, but two or three hours on your makeup like every day when there's other stuff to do is not. <laughs> three hours, is that probably didn't happen. But I would spend a long, a long time on my makeup, time I didn't have. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a hard <laughs> one, isn't it? Because it's like, if you want to spend two hours on your makeup, I'm not shaming, I would never shame anyone mm-hmm. for that. But at the same time, is that some sort of way of making women kind of less powerful? Because it's like, just stay at home and do that. Yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. And time is like, a uh, time is something I thought about a lot in the book as well. Um, I started to think about the nature of um, doing black hair and how it does actually require more so when my hair is like um even blow dried straight um once that's been done it doesn't kind of require as much time as it does when my hair is like kind of in its natural texture um i'm very consciously avoiding using the word time consuming because this is something i talk about in the book the idea that um one of the kind of justifications for black women straightening their hair oh it is oh it's too time consuming um to leave it in its to leave it in its natural state and i talk about well i researched um kind of hairstyles that um women and men actually because this is also um something a a, a culture that men were involved in as well men would often spend hours on their hair in Africa I was just like oh why why is it time consuming when for millennia it wouldn't have been viewed that way and I was like oh because it doesn't fit neatly into the prescribed amount of time that you're allowed to um kind of do personal care or personal grooming kind of within a capitalist system but I was like black hair grows the way it grows for a reason the time that's required to do it is the time that's required to do it. It's not necessarily time consuming. That's just its needs. Mm. And if you live in a society where its needs can't be met, you have to think about who designed that society and was it designed with your best interests as central because any culture or society develops according to the needs of the people in that society. So you have to think about are you being expected to kind of conform to rules that were never supposed to really include you or were certainly never concerned by you in the first place that is reflected in unfortunately the amount of like products for black hair doesn't seem to be we don't seem to be there yet in terms of like walking into a mainstream outlet and being able to get what you need 
Yeah, that's that's still true. Um, it it's it's certainly improved um a little bit in recent years. If you go into like a really big, um, pharmacy. So if you go into most of the chains, you still won't find black products. Yeah. If you go into like one of their massive stores, you'll find a limited range, but still often not the thing you're looking mm. for. So yeah, you have to go to a specialist shop in a particular area. And it's often just really inconvenient if you don't live in one of those areas, close to one of those areas, or if you're traveling, like if you're in an airport or a train station or something, um, and you're like, I travel like a lot for work. Um, and often I'll be in an airport or a train station and I just need to buy something for my hair. Um, and it's not possible. Um, it's just, and it, but it's possible for everybody else's hair. Mm. Um, it is, yeah, frustrating to say, <laughs> to say the least. It's interesting, like the examples you use of like the people that you would see on TV mm -hmm. and they would have certain types of hair. And I suppose that happens a lot when you're watching TV and you're like, oh, I, I don't look like that. How yeah. did you manage to look like that? Yeah. So when I was growing up, um, there were very, very few. Um, once, once I moved back to Ireland, um, which is where I was born, but then we spent the first um, we spent four years in Atlanta, which is like a very black city. And then we moved back to Ireland and suddenly I was like, felt like the only black person in the country often. Um, but what was I going to say? Yeah. So my hair was very different to the hair of anybody around me in real life. And then there wasn't on top of that, there wasn't much representation. But the few women that I remember when I was like maybe eight or nine, like I loved Nina Cherry like mm. so much. And I guess she's mixed race and was somebody that like, you know, was the same kind of color as me, but her hair was like so different to mine. She had quote unquote good hair or more typically mixed race hair, whereas my hair um, has very much favored the Nigerian side of my ancestry. It's like very tightly coiled. Um, so I was just like, oh, this woman looks like me, but she kind of has like, quote unquote, normal hair. Like, why is what? Like, why is that? That made me feel kind of even more inadequate about my own hair. And a few years after that, again, I talk about like the Fresh Prince and seeing like Ashley Banks and Hillary Banks. Um, but now, as I'm older, realizing that they're also, even though in the program they play, their parents are both black. They play the children of black parents. In real life, they're both mixed. And for them, unlike me, their mixedness has resulted in quote unquote good hair. Hillary's got kind of curly hair, more loosely curly hair. And Ashley has hair that like kind of very much resembles uh, or yeah, resembles the fact that her father is Indian. So she has like long, very straight long, hair. almost straight yeah. hair. Um, so again, I was just like, but even like the black people I'm seeing seem to have quote unquote normal hair. What's wrong with me? Um, so really yeah, it was really disorienting. <laughs> so the, the only black women that you saw on TV with their natural hair were those that had hair that already conformed to European ideals mm. of what was beautiful or what was attractive or what was normal. It's, it's crazy, you know, what in the book, this idea of good and bad 
mm-hmm. and just and just like how you've unpicked that so amazingly in the book. And by the end of it, I was just like, everyone needs to read this book. Because for people listening who might not know, you talk about colorism in the book. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that for people that might not know what that means. Yeah. Um, white people are often kind of unaware of of, of colorism. Um Whereas in black communities, it's to varying degrees in different geographic locations um, because it's certainly more pronounced in some black cultures than it is in others. Um, But it exists to varying degrees in all black cultures I've been in. Um, It's the hierarchical ranking of um, black people, but according to the shade of their skin. So obviously black people in com- people racialized as black encompass a vast range of complexions. So it's like the preferential treatment of those who are lighter, of a lighter complexion than those who mm-hmm. have a darker complexion. And the different levels, the, the different kind of grades of skin color that might be kind of almost even imperceptible to a white person who's not thinking about it will be kind of very... Uh, will be very apparent to people in black communities who will think about it a lot. Um, One thing I would like to say about colorism, though, is I often hear this argument that it's like something that's always existed and um, it's just a universal preference for light skin. And that's something that I challenge and, yeah, debunk in the book. Um, In pre-colonial Africa, I can't talk about colorism that exists in um in in other parts of the world, in Asia, for example. It's not my area of expertise and I don't know about its kind of pre-colonial history. But certainly in Africa, um, there wasn't in West Africa, there wasn't a particular preference for lighter skin. Um, that is something that emerges from colonialism and slavery. Um, so it's not just some kind of enduring norm because light skin is inherently seen as better. It's definitely something that is has been imposed. And in the book, I talk about um, phrases in Yoruba, um, which is a southwestern Nigerian language, um, an ethnic group where Yoruba people, even if you're not talking about um anyone being mixed race, just you, just Yoruba people who aren't mixed come and diff- have different complexions. Um, so there's um, a saying, it's like one who is red, one whose skin is as red as palm oil. Basically, one whose skin is as red as palm oil and is like beautiful. And then there's another saying about one whose skin is as dark as the shining seed of the Aki apple and is beautiful. The point is that you wouldn't be beautiful traditionally. You wouldn't be beautiful by virtue of having light skin. Equally, you wouldn't not be beautiful or not be attractive by virtue of having dark skin. You could have lighter skin and be beautiful. You could have lighter skin and not be beautiful. You could have darker skin and be beautiful or not be beautiful. It wasn't dependent on your complexion. So the idea that like having, being lighter just gives you beauty or not being lighter kind of denies you beauty is a relatively um is not like an indigenous concept it's something that comes yeah from history of colonialism and slavery sorry i kind of no it's so important (laughs) to know this stuff sort of linking to that in the book there's a moment where you sort of say that you've had lots of compliments and people almost like accept you because you're attractive in many cases yeah 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 Yeah. that's why I say that I'm grateful for 
I mean, I can say I'm grateful now. I didn't feel grateful when I was experiencing some of this stuff. It's just with the benefit of years having passed and hindsight, I can be like, oh, this has given me insights, even though it wasn't necessarily enjoyable at the time. But I think seeing um, that I had periods of my life where I wasn't considered attractive, I was very much outside the beauty standard, and then having other periods of my life where that was completely the reverse, and seeing how differently I was treated as a result of where I was positioned as attractive or not, was actually like a huge, <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of a, a quite a head fuck. Um, yeah, to be on both sides yeah, of that, yeah, yeah, yeah. you can see it for what it is and yeah. how weird society is in what they accept and what they don't at certain periods of time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I actually think, um, okay, so I remember like leaving, um, like leaving Ireland and going to um, visit my cousins in Atlanta, where I had spent the first few years of my life. I still have a lot of family there. And Atlanta is in the South, in America, and colorism absolutely rife there so that's one of the places I've gone where I've experienced colorism at its most pronounced and I remember like getting on the plane in Dublin where I was referred to as like the dark one the black one the dark one so people would just describe me um and the beauty standard was very skinny blonde hair blue eyes and then I get off the plane however many hours later in Atlanta and now I'm I'm the beauty standard and I wasn't prepared, like I, I didn't know that that, I didn't know about that. This is like in the mid nineties. So I don't know, things were much more localized. You didn't have the same discussions about colorism online and stuff. Um, so I thought that if anything, I actually thought, I remember thinking I experienced so much racism in Ireland and I was like, okay, so black people have never done anything to white people, but I get so much hostility in this country for being black. When I now go to a place, when I now go to a black place where these people have essentially been terrorized by white people, it's very obvious that I have white ancestry. I'm going to get a really hard, I'm going to have a really hard time. I'm going to get shit off people. But that wasn't the case. Instead, I was being celebrated for having visible white ancestry. And I was just like, what? <laughs> like, what's going on? Of course, initially, I enjoyed the attention, but that actually wore off quite quickly. And obviously, I went back to Ireland as well. So I wasn't the beauty standard anymore. Um, but just seeing the different position, I mean, I'm, I was the same person, but my treatment and people's perception of me and people's expectations and assumptions about me were so different as well. Um, in Ireland, being of African descent, being seen as black was associated with like stigma. Whereas like now in the American South, being light skinned was associated with being kind of like upper class or being like more kind of sophisticated or like elite. So it's really like jarring to just be in these vastly contradictory and contrasting spaces. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah, I just kind of, yeah. yeah, write about some of those different, those different positionings. Um, and then also in Ireland, like I, I did have, when I got into my teens, um, I kind of, even though like I wasn't like the beauty standard, the typical beauty standard, by the time I got to like a certain time in my teens, I did start to be seen as being like an exotic kind of beauty. But that came with like a lot of fetishization and also 
as I write about in the book, it came with people actually saying, oh, you're really lucky that you're pretty because like you can get away, you can you can kind of get away with being black. And that was the bit in the book. That <laughs> has been said to me numerous times, not in a long time, I have to say, but certainly as a teenager, that was an attitude I encountered mm. quite frequently. So that's also a head fuck. You know, you're a teenager yeah. and you're just really, even if race doesn't come into it, you're trying to like deal with like your appearance and your butt like and, and weight and attractiveness and if you're straight with boys and all of that and then to just add this kind of racialized element onto it it was just incredibly incredibly I don't even know if it's the word is confusing it was exhausting mm. yeah I mean honestly it I, that's why I loved your book so much is because <laughs> of all of these layers of like growing up in Ireland going through all this stuff like seeing things from all these different views and being one person with so many different sides <laughs> to you. And it's just incredible. And I wondered, having had that head fuck of like being seen in different ways through different lenses, did you then come back to like yourself and more of a neutral state of like, actually, this is what I think about myself now? In Eventually, but after many years of being like, also there being an emphasis on my there being an emphasis on my looks and basically my looks dictating whether or not because if somebody if somebody's saying to you you're lucky that you're pretty because you can get away with being black like like what like what are they they're being such emphasis on your looks negative and inverted commas positive <laughs> um i became very obsessed with my appearance thus the hours spent on makeup um the various starvation techniques it was probably it was more after years of that i'm just being exhausted by it i feel like appearance we we can pretend it doesn't matter we can pretend that we don't think about it but we we live in a world where people still place so much value and and yeah. and like importance on it thank you that's I, that brings me back to what i wanted to say there's a bit where i quote like tony oh maybe like she didn't make it into the book but there was a bit um where I had referenced Toni Morrison, um, who I reference a lot throughout the book. She's like my my mm. favorite. Also, author. I noticed on your bookshelf. Oh my god, look here! There's um. Well, afterwards you can look. Yes. There's like amazing. Just so many Toni Morrison <laughs> books. There's like a huge pile of them there. But um, but I was reading and watching interviews with her, and I heard her talking about beauty, and she was talking about the Black is Beautiful movement, and she was saying how she was never really a part of it because she was like. I understood why it had to happen. I'm, I'm speaking as though I'm Toni Morrison. Though. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, she was like, she understood why, why, why it happened, but she wasn't really interested because she was just like, to who, to whom are you speaking? Who are you saying that black is beautiful? She's just like, is this to white people? She was like, I know. She was like, I know that black is, I know that black is beautiful. That's not necessarily how I felt. I didn't know that, or I didn't even if I had people telling me I was beautiful there were also so many like kind of contradictory things telling me that like my features weren't that I just I, I, I didn't feel I didn't feel secure in my appearance at all um, but she says that she knew blackness was beautiful she didn't she felt that constantly asserting that black was beautiful was kind of pandering to whiteness in a way but then the bit that I found most interesting was she was just like, do we need to be beautiful to for our humanity to be recognized? And that really resonated mm -hmm. with me because it goes back to that thing of like, you're lucky, you're pretty because you can get away with being black. She was just like, beauty 
is not um, beauty is too fragile. And that's exactly really similar to something I'd written like before I'd even read her or heard her saying that. And it was like I came to realize that like beauty is so fragile. I mean, it's such a it's such a fragile space to mm-hmm. kind of negotiate your humanity. Yeah. Like your humanity can't be given or withheld from you because people happen to perceive you as beautiful or yeah. not. I had to do a lot of work to like divest from the importance that I put on looks. And then I went completely the other way and I was just like, okay, I'm just going to be like super frumpy. But I was like, I don't care anymore. Well, I did care. But I was just like, I'm going to make that sacrifice. I'm just going to be kind of like a frumpy, like militant feminist. I just felt like I had to stop straightening my hair because it didn't reconcile with my politics. But there was no part of me that thought it could ever be attractive. Um, so I just wore kind of shapeless clothes, stopped wearing makeup. But then I was like, this is also... This is also ludicrous. Like this actually isn't me either. Like, and I also, also I was concerned, especially when I started teaching, that if I was perceived as being like too glamorous, like people wouldn't take me mm. like seriously. So I went completely like the other, the other route. And um, then I just came to a state of more balance where I was like, um, no, people like if I'm going to wear red lipstick, people are still going to have to like <laughs> take me if I'm going to wear red lipstick, people can still take me seriously. So I started to yeah. like, you know, be able to enjoy kind of makeup and stuff again, but like in a healthier way. Yeah, it's so like I'm that. Like it, no, it's like that age old thing of like, I'm a feminist and dot, dot, dot. Like I'm a feminist and I'm wearing like massive stilettos or <laughs> wearing red lipstick or. Yeah. Um, I could talk to you for hours, but um, just to wrap it up, I've just wondered with every, you know, with the book going out so mm-hmm. soon and you're going to get such a wide readership of readers. What are you hoping the book kind of does or, or, or is there a goal with it or did you just want to write it? There's quite a few ideas um, in the book that maybe are like kind of new ideas certainly ones that I haven't um heard um, much in the mainstream so I would really like um yeah just to see the kind of dissemination of those ideas and what kind of conversations they spark I I hope so it's it's really hard like for me to kind of predict or to feel much other than quite nervous about it so yeah but everyone listening needs to go and buy it don't touch my hair so brilliant and I could have spoken to you for like 10 hours I have more questions but maybe you can come back on and we can do part two once it comes out yeah that would be great that would be really fun thank you so much thank you I really enjoyed it (laughs) 